words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, reading from verse 10 to verse 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now we are considering this important statement and we are particularly examining this phrase about the wiles of the devil. And here we are interested in it at the moment as uh, these wiles are manifested in the attacks of the devil upon the individual. We've already been considering the wiles of the devil as they're manifested in a more general sense. The whole state of the world this morning is due to the wiles of the devil. That's the explanation of this critical condition in which things are to be found at the present time. This is but the devil trying to bring confusion and disorder and disruption into God's world. Here we see we are really facing the great problem of life in this world. But at the moment we are looking at it, as I say, as it affects the individual. For after all, we are individuals as well as being citizens of countries and states. We have our personal problems, as well as the more general problems. And it is essential we should consider this subject, therefore, from all aspects. Now, we are dealing with it at the moment in terms of the ways in which the devil attacks us in the realm of our experience. We have looked at it as he attacks the mind. We are now looking at it in the realm of experience. We hope to go on to consider it in the realm of practice. These are not absolute distinctions and divisions. Each one obviously merges into the other. But it's good to have some kind of classification in our minds. Now, we've looked at this from different aspects. The standpoint of assurance, quenching the spirit. Uh, and last Sunday we were dealing with the whole problem of thoughts that are suggested to us by the devil. Evil, ugly, foul thoughts and imaginations and doubts and things like that. Everything the devil can do to obstruct our worship of God and our service of God. Well, now we move on to another group this morning. I'm doing my utmost to deal with these things rapidly. Obviously, we could dilate on each one at great length, but we mustn't do that. We are trying to deal with big groups of difficulties and of problems. So we come this morning to what uh, can be subsumed under the general heading of general discouragement. Now, uh, we've been dealing hitherto with what uh, we might very well call particular forms of discouragement, but now we're dealing with uh, the more general type of discouragement with which the devil uh, tries to afflict us all. I suppose that uh, this is again one of the commoner manifestations of the wiles of the devil. Uh, if I were asked to hazard an opinion, 
as to what is the most prevailing spiritual disease in the church today, I would suggest that it is this, discouragement. There are many reasons, of course, to account for that. The whole state of the world, the whole state of society, they're difficult. They're very, very discouraging days. There are some people, of course, who don't feel any discouragement. Well, that's, of course, a defect in their temperament. That means that they can't see and that their eyes are not open and that they're not sensitive, that they're probably so interested in their own activities that they can't take a general view. But speaking generally, these are very discouraging days for the church and for the individual Christian. And uh, the devil, uh, as I say, uh, constantly works on this particular aspect of the Christian's life and experience. That's why you get so much uh, space given to a consideration of this in the Bible itself. It's in the Old Testament. Many of the Psalms are entirely devoted to this. The psalmist is discouraged. And he addresses himself and his soul. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And he was very frequently cast down, discouraged. There are many, many psalms that deal with this in a very wonderful way. And, but, but it's equally present in the New Testament. This attempt to differentiate utterly between the old and the new is quite false. People say, oh, but the, the Old Testament saints haven't got the Holy Spirit as we have. That's perfectly true. But that mustn't be interpreted as meaning that Christians never know discouragement. They do. That's why so much attention is paid to this in the pages of the New Testament itself. Well, now then, let's have a look at this subject. What is it that causes this discouragement? And there are many answers to this question. The first I just glance at, because we've really already dealt with it many weeks ago, and that is the matter of temperament. There are some people, as I say, who are more subject to discouragement than others. You can't help this. You're born with your temperament. And there's nothing wrong with temperament. I think I reminded you some time ago that probably the best type of temperament was the type of temperament that was praised so much by William Cowper, namely that temperament which on the whole knows something of this melancholic element, if you like, but which also is capable of rising to the heights. It will be an interesting discussion to know which ultimately is the more fortunate temperament to have, that temperament of the extrovert or the introvert, the temperament of the phleg phlegmatic type of person, and the person perhaps who's given to a tendency to this melancholic view, or that uh, complete, extrovert, sanguine, optimistic type of person. Well, we mustn't delay with that. But the fact is that if one uh, is by nature born with this temperament that tends a little to the more serious and despondent type, well, then the devil, of course, will take full advantage of that. And we've already considered that, so we don't stay with it this morning. But we have to mention it in order that our list may be complete as we are considering this matter. Very well, then, the, one of the first things we all have to learn in the Christian life is uh, to know ourselves. We've got to get to know ourselves. You can't live properly with yourself if you don't know yourself. And there are so many people, it seems to me, who have never known themselves. 
They've never looked on at themselves. They've never recognized the type they belong to. And therefore, they're not aware that they have to be unusually careful at certain points. Get to know yourself and to talk to yourself. Put up special guards at certain points. And if you find it difficult to do this yourself, well, then you must consult with others and ask their help and their aid. It's always easier to see things in other people than in ourselves. Nevertheless, it is the duty of the Christian to know himself. And therefore, I say to be unusually careful at certain points. You know your weaknesses. Get to know your weaknesses. Get to know your tendencies. And then, once you've known them and watched them, you are already a long way in the direction of a complete victory over the devil and his wiles at that point. But let me go on to something else. This kind of temperament, therefore, is particularly subject to what I'm going to call in the second place the tendency to introspection and morbidity. Now, what does this mean? Well, uh, this is uh, the tendency to be spending most of our time in looking inwards, in uh, examining ourselves, and always watching and observing our inward moods and states and conditions. But, Sir someone, I thought you've just been telling us that we ought to examine ourselves and discover the truth about ourselves and our temperament. Ah, now it's just there that the wiles of the devil come in. Self-examination is something that is commended in the scriptures. A man or a woman who never indulges in self-examination is of necessity a very poor Christian. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians in the second epistle in the last chapter, says, examine your own selves. You're supposed to. And the type of Christian who never examines himself at all, he is of necessity a very poor Christian. It means he's self-satisfied. It means he thinks he's arrived, he's got everything. And he hasn't, of course. You notice those words which we read in the last chapter of the epistle to the Galatians this morning? It's a very striking thing. If any man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And that's always the trouble with a man who doesn't examine himself at all. Now, the devil, as we've been seeing right away through this discussion, he always presses us from one extreme to the other. There are some people who never examine themselves at all. Ah, yes, but we are now dealing with this other type. These know that it is a duty to indulge in self-examination, and therefore they proceed to do so. And the devil, knowing them, knowing that they're sensitive, that they're spiritually minded people, knowing that they're intelligent and have a true understanding of these matters, and that they're very concerned to obey the scriptural injunctions, knowing that they're anxious to grow and to develop, that they're not satisfied with where they are, the devil, knowing all this, comes along and he presses them on this very matter of self-examination. He drives them to it. He holds them to it. And he keeps them at it and to such an extent that he succeeds in bringing them into a state and a condition which is utterly depressed. They feel depressed. They feel hopeless. They're in a complete muddle. They don't know what to do. Now, that is, I suppose, one of the commonest causes of this condition. It's when you cross the line from self-examination to introspection. Now, the very term introspection is a very good one. 
It means that you've got all your cameras, as it were, trained inwardly. All your telescopes are looking inwardly. All your means and mechanism of examination are turned inwards upon the self. It means that your whole life is one of looking inwards. You're turned right in upon yourself. Now that is the condition which the devil so frequently produces. And it leads to that accompanying condition of morbidity. And that means an unhealthy state of the soul and of the whole spirit of the person. It means that it's not able to function properly. It's a kind of paralysis. It's a disease. A kind of organic disease of the soul and spirit. Morbidity. And it's the result, I say, of overdoing something which is good and right in and of itself. That's where you see the wiles of the devil come in. The devil never tempts this sort of person to go and commit some flagrant, awful sin. Never. But he equally succeeds with them by just turning them in so much upon themselves that they're utterly depressed and in a state of misery and paralysis and uselessness. Very well. What are we to do about this? What is the answer to the devil at this point? We shall have to deal with this later when we come to the parts of the whole armor of God. But I, I can't leave these matters without just a word of encouragement to any such uh, introspective, morbid soul that may be listening this morning. And if there are those present who feel, well, why are you bothering with all this? Those people really need nothing but a good kind of spanking. If you feel like that, my friend, my reply again to you is in Galatians 6. Bury one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you don't know anything about this sort of condition, take it from me. It can be a very terrible thing to pass through. And in any case, as I said at the beginning, it's very difficult to decide which of the two persons one could defend the more easily, this morbid introspective person, or that extrovert who never examines himself at all and who thinks he is something when he is nothing. Bury one another's burdens. And at the same time, every man shall bear his own burden. Let's keep these things in our minds. Now then a word, I say, of help to such persons. What do we say? Well, we can start with a general principle. Depression is always wrong. A Christian has no right to be depressed. Now, I put it like that deliberately, because the realization of that is often the door of escape and of liberty. The tragedy is, of course, that when the devil plays with us with these wiles of his and gets us into this state, we're not aware of it. We are so preoccupied with the self-analysis and the cataloging of the details and deficiencies that we don't see ourselves as a whole. And sometimes this is all that is necessary. That we suddenly see ourselves in the reading of the scripture or someone points out to us in a sermon or in conversation. Our condition as a whole. And we suddenly see ourselves as depressed and miserable Christians sitting in a corner with the whole world as it is today and men and women going to hell round and about us. And here are we so preoccupied with ourselves that we are utterly useless. Not only that, giving them the impression obviously that there's not much point in trying Christianity because that's what it leads to. So we are not only not helping them, we are barring the gate of entry into the kingdom of God against them for all we are worth. You suddenly see yourself and you rise up and you say no more of this. Well now, that's, that's the way to start. 
But let me suggest another thing. In order that you may meet the devil with his own weapon. You see, he'll have been quoting scripture. He will say, examine yourself, prove your own selves, that you may know whether you're in the faith or not. And you say, quite right, I must do this. Well then, but you turn on the devil and you say, yes, but there are other scriptures. And here is one that surely comes in immediately at this point. Justification by faith only. Why is this person depressed? Well, he's depressed for this reason, that having examined himself or herself in this minute way, and it is always a matter of details, fine points, most delicate, feeling the pulse, taking the temperature, every conceivable investigation is, is carried out, and then all these things are tabulated, and here's the record, here's the case, it's all very bad, and it's there in great detail. And the conclusion drawn is, well, am I a Christian at all? Have I ever really been a Christian? Is it possible? Now, that's the devil's objective, of course, is to get us to feel that. If he can make us examine ourselves in such a way that it not only becomes introspection, but leads us to the conclusion that we've never been Christians at all, he is perfectly happy and delighted. Now, I would remind you that the fundamental answer to him is this. That whatever we may feel like, we are still Christians. But how do we prove that to ourselves? That's the necessity at this point. Well, the way you do it, you see, is again. And that is why the Protestant reformers saw that this is the fundamental article of a living or a dying church. Justification by faith only. In other words, the way you meet the devil at this point is this. Here is the list of deficiencies. It's all there before you, and the devil says, look at that. There it is. There's only one conclusion to draw. You're not a Christian. You've never been a Christian. Now, there's only one answer at that point, and it is this. What makes a man a Christian is not anything that he finds in himself. It is Jesus' blood and righteousness. Thank God for this. For if all of us only examined ourselves truly and tried to decide on that basis whether we are Christians or not, there wouldn't be a single Christian. There's only one thing that makes us Christian. It is him, it is he, it is his righteousness. And there is nothing else whatsoever but that. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty is my glorious dress. So you round on the devil and you say, yes, all that is absolutely true. But it doesn't prove that I'm not a Christian. Because even as that, I still am looking only unto him and relying upon him alone. Now you've got to do that. And if you don't do that, you're being defeated by the wiles of the devil and you're guilty of introspection and morbidity. In other words, how do we deal with this whole question of self-examination? Well, I suggest you do something like this. You examine yourself, as the scripture tells you to. You examine yourself in the light of the scriptural teaching. Then you recognize the faults, the failures, the blemishes, everything, quite honestly. Now comes the crucial moment. What do you do now? Well, instead of sitting down or remaining seated as you were and just condemning yourself and moaning and groaning and bewailing your failures 
and spending the rest of the day in just turning in and then discovering still more and going on in this process of utter self-condemnation instead of doing that. With a list in your hand, you go to God and you get on your knees and you confess it all to him. And you repent of it all. You express your sorrow, your regret. You take it to him and say, it's true. I am condemned. I'm hopeless. I'm wrong. But then you don't stop there. Having confessed it all with shame and with honesty and true repentance. You remember what he said to you. And what he's saying to you at that moment, if you only listen to him instead of to the devil, because the devil will be whispering at you and shouting at you. The devil will be driving you and saying, you have no right even to go into the presence of God. You're such a failure. You're such a hopeless person. You listen to the devil, and of course, you'll get off your knees as miserable as you were when you went on to your knees. But listen to the voice of God. He's speaking to you at that moment, and this is what he says. If we confess our sins, now, this is Christian people. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe him. Believe him there and then. Thank him immediately. Say, oh God, I can scarce believe it, but I do. I know thy word is true. And thou art saying at this point that thou art faithful. That thou wouldst be unfaithful to thine own word if thou didst not forgive me at this point. He is faithful and just. Thy justice is involved. Thou hast dealt with this very sin, this catalogue, in Christ on the cross. It's forgiven. Accept it. Thank God for it. Rise up off your feet. And go on to live the Christian life as it should be lived. Realize more than ever your need of the strength and the power that comes to you only through the Holy Ghost. But remind yourself that the Holy Ghost is in you. That as a part of the gift of salvation is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Realize he is in you. Realize what he can enable you to do. That though you're weak and frail and unworthy, he can make you more than conqueror. Realize that he'll mediate you and bring to you the whole power of Christ. Remember that such as you are, even you, you're a member of the body of Christ and that he's the head and that the life and the power comes down through all the joints and all the parts which the apostle has been teaching us about in the fourth chapter in the 16th verse. Remind yourself of it all and get up, I say, and get on. But what you must never do is just to sit in the corner going round and round in that whirlpool, that vortex of failure and defeat and self-condemnation. You mustn't do it. Introspection and morbidity are wrong. They're sinful. The Christian, I say, has no right to be depressed at that point and in that way. And the answer is, I say, to realize what the devil's trying to do with you. And that he's blinded you temporally to justification by faith only. There, you see, it is again. There's nothing apart from justification by faith. That's the place where you always get a foothold. Whenever you find yourself slipping down that slope, whenever you feel that you're going back from where you were and that, you can't, that you're slipping, you're going, the place you'll always find stability and get your foot in is justification by faith only. And you know, it defeats most of the wiles of the devil. 
Well then, let's I say, be very certain about this, for it is the royal remedy, the infallible remedy against morbidity and introspection. Are you already relieved, my friend? Are you released? Or are you still saying, ah, yes, but if you only knew. Now, if you say that, you've missed the whole point. There are no buts and ifs where justification by faith is involved. I don't care what's the truth about you. I don't care how black, how vile, how hopeless, how ignorant, how whatever you may say about yourself. Throw it all in. Justification by faith means that in spite of what you are, Christ died for you. While we were enemies, while we were yet without strength. So if you bring in your buts and ifs, you haven't seen it. There's nothing of any value in any one of us. And if you're looking to yourself in any sense, you're in the hands of the devil. He's defeated you with his wiles. Now, now, you must see that as you are, if you're looking to him and relying only upon his perfect work on your behalf, that you're saved by that and by that alone, that's the answer. And you must get there. And you must bring yourself there. And you must compel yourself to get there. And having seen it, rise up and attack the devil and repulse him. Say, God's honor is involved in this matter. He is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Very well. Morbidity and introspection. But then, uh, very closely akin to this, is another way in which he often does it. It isn't the same thing as what I've been talking about because this next thing often afflicts people who are not given to introspection. But it is a consciousness of lack of progress. Not always as the result of examination, but, uh, well, it comes in various other ways. It uh, means that we uh, have a feeling that we are not making any progress in our grasp of truth. Or in our understanding of truth and the way of salvation. It means that we feel that we are not growing much in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord or in achievement. What brings this about? Well, sometimes this happens to us as the result of looking at other people. Not self-examination so much as looking at other people. Ah, we say those people... They seem to understand in a way that I don't. They seem to have grown in a way that I haven't. They've got much more than I have. You may therefore get this as you meet other people, fellow members of a church, or you may get it sometimes as you read. Now I'm going to say something that's very open to misunderstanding at this point, as most things that are worth saying are open to misunderstanding. Always. You know, reading can be a very dangerous thing. Ah, now then, there are many going out to say that I've said this morning that Christians shouldn't read. Well, that's it. That's the wiles of the devil. No, no, that's not what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is this, that because reading is such a wonderful and valuable thing for the Christian, the devil obviously is going to pay unusual attention to it. And this is one of the ways in which he does it. He makes people read about some great saints. Then, having read it, he says... That's Christianity. Where are you? That's the way to live the Christian life. Where are you? Comes to a preacher and makes him read the journals of George Whitfield. He says, that's preaching. That's the way to be a Christian minister. What about you? And he feels at once he's never preached in his life, that he's done nothing. 
And so, you see, he can take these excellent means that are provided by God himself and press it too hard again. And by drawing these comparisons and contrasts, we feel again that we've made no progress. We've got nothing at all. We don't understand. We've never had an experience. We've never done anything. And once more, we are in this state of depression. I don't want to stay with this, but what's the answer to this? Well, it seems to me the answer is something like this. Be yourself. Be yourself. You're never meant to be anything but yourself. What terrible trouble this causes in life. People are anxious to be something that they're not. What a foolish thing it is in every realm and department. Even on the natural level, it's all wrong. There's nothing so idiotic as to wish that you are something that you're not. The desire to be tall or to be short. The desire to be of this color or that color. To have this power or that power. What a foolish thing it is. How useless. You can't change it. But more than that, why should you want to change? It's a wonderful thing to be yourself. You're an individual, and you're an individual made by God. These things are not accidental. There's great value in individuality. If you made a, an analysis of all of us in detail, then picked out the points and put them into columns, it would balance up in a most amazing manner at the end. You see, we, we tend to attach far too much significance to certain things, and we don't realize the value of other things. But to God, oh, he sees things in a different way. And uh, things that the world never knows about are very wonderful in the sight of God. You see, our Lord uh, spoke that parable about that woman who put those two hatlings into the collection in order to teach that. The world pays no attention to two hatlings. Two millions? Marvelous. Two hatlings? Nothing. Not in the sight of God. Well, now, that's true of the whole of our personalities and of our beings. So I say the way to answer the devil is this, is to just realize this principle and to say, well, I am myself and I'm meant to be myself. And all God asks of me is that I do my best and my utmost as I am. I may not meant to be a great cornerstone in the building, but you know, there are, it's necessary to have a number of loose stones to fill up between these big stones sometimes. I'm only one of them, perhaps, but uh, if there were none of them, these others wouldn't be able to sustain the wall, and the building would never go up. It's all right. Read 1 Corinthians 12. And there you'll see a complete exposition of this matter. The less comely parts are essential to the body. Don't despise them. Don't deride them. Don't look down upon them. Every part of the body is essential to the functioning and the working of it all. There's no such thing as an unimportant Christian, an unimportant church member. Every one of us counts. And it's amazing to me, and very thrilling and very romantic, I speak as a pastor and as a minister, to notice this very thing. You know, there are some very quiet people in this church and in every other church. They're performing a great function by just being pleasant people. They sometimes help me much more than the more gifted. But, no, no, keep the balance. The others, the more gifted, they do it in a different way. But the whole is necessary, and let's realize this. Don't try to be something you're not meant to be. Don't be jealous of somebody who seems to you to be bigger or greater. Or if you are the bigger and greater, don't despise the other. Every man shall bear his own burdens. 
We bear one another's burdens, but we bear our own burdens also. God will only hold you responsible for what you've done with what he gave you. It's God who decided how much to give you. Be faithful with your one talent. Doesn't matter. Use it to the utmost. Be faithful with your five. All these terms are relative. But what God wants is that every one of us should realize our sense of gratitude to him, the sense of privilege of being what I am, though I'm so unworthy and so small and insignificant. I am what I am by the grace of God, and God knows me. Christ died for me, even for me, very well. I mustn't despise myself. And I mustn't be constantly comparing myself with others. I'm going to live the life that God has given me, the temperament, the personality. I'm going to use it all to the utmost, to the glory of God. I can do no more, and I know that God expects no more. Answer him like that. Now let me come to another. Here's another very common manifestation of the wiles of the devil in this matter. Weary in well-doing. These things, you see, are all related. The one leads to the other. Now, here, as I said at the beginning, is uh, perhaps the commonest of all these manifestations at the present time. Weary in well-doing. The strain of life. Daily round, common task. The fight. The difficulties. Nothing much happening. We're living in evil days, my dear friends. They're bad days in every respect. Not only in the world at large, but in the church. When you compare and contrast today, say with a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, oh, what days. With the Spirit of God outpoured in that great evangelical awakening, the tremendous things happening under the mighty Spirit of God, days of revival, and again in 1857, 59, 60, and even up to 61, oh, what wonderful days. But look at our days. What days of discouragement they are. So little happening. Everything seems to be against us. All the new problems that have come in, militating against the church and her work and against the life of the individual Christians. And the whole pace of life, the strain and the tiredness. Women in the home feeling it as perhaps never before and so on and so forth. Well now all this, you see, tends to produce this condition of weariness. Tiredness. And if the devil can only get us to feel like that, he has succeeded very admirably. The feeling begins to creep in. Is it worth going on? Is there anything in it? Need I keep up this pace? Need I go at it? Nothing seems to happen. Well, let's slacken off a bit. Let's take things a little more easily. That's the devil's way of coming in with his wiles and his insinuations. Oh, there are throughout this country today, there are men and women known to me in large numbers who are Sunday by Sunday preaching to little congregations. I was talking to a man only this last week who'd been preaching the previous Sunday to four people. And he said, you know, sometimes I begin to wonder whether it's worthwhile. But yet there are hundreds of such men scattered up and down this country. I say this for your encouragement, my friends. I remember going out of this pulpit one night. It must be about five or six years ago. And a man dashed into me. He said he was catching his train back to Newcastle on time. And he'd really come just to tell me one thing. 
And I said, what's that? Well, he said, I just want you to know this. If ever the devil tries to discourage you, I want you to know this, he said, that the thought of Westminster Chapel has often kept me going. He said, I'm a bit of a lay preacher up in my district. And he says, you know, the devil sometimes says to me, is it worth your doing it? There'll only be three or four people there, perhaps nine or ten, just a handful. Is it worthwhile going on? He said, you know, what's often made me go on has just been this. I've said to myself, ah, that man is probably going up those steps into that pulpit at Westminster tonight and there'll be a great congregation. It's the same thing. We're in the same battle I'm going on. God isn't interested in the numbers. But you see, that's how the devil comes in. He comes to discourage us in that way. And we begin to wonder whether it's worth going on at all. Now, the individual Christian may feel this. Even in the fight. And, now, perhaps you're the only Christian in your family. And everything's against you. You're being misunderstood. You're being laughed at. You're being criticized. And you say, well, I've been going on like this for years and it doesn't seem to help them. It doesn't seem to make any difference. And I'm only getting the kicks on all sides. I wonder whether I should slacken off a bit. Must I go on like this if I'd only got something to show? To be, but there's nothing to show. It's just a hard grind. I'm going against everything the whole time. And the devil comes and says, slacken off, give up. Well, now what's the answer? Well, I've got nothing to do at this point but to quote some texts to you. But they're great and glorious texts. Be not weary in well-doing. My dear friend, what you're doing is a good thing. It's well-doing. See, that's the answer. What you're doing is not only worthwhile, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. It's the most glorious thing in the world. It's well-doing. You see, you're standing for truth. You're standing for Christ. You're standing for God. You're standing for the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. I know there's not much to show, but it doesn't matter. You're there, you know, you're not the sun, perhaps, but you're a little match. And thank God for a, the light of a match when there's nothing but gloom and darkness and despair. Don't, don't be weary in well-doing. You know, you are standing for everything that is noble and true and beautiful and right and holy in a world of shame and sin and darkness and vileness and foulness. Be not weary, my dear friend, in well-doing. Hold on to that. Then let's go back again to Zechariah 4. Despise not the day of small things. Ah, oh, but you say, what is there to show for it? It's all right, I agree with you, there's not much to show today. As there was very little to show in the time of Zechariah. Here was the message, you see, after the captivity. And they were only beginning to go back, and there didn't seem to be anything. And there was that great mountain facing them. And they said, oh, we are moving on an inch or two, perhaps, but we've got to get that mountain over that mountain and to the other side before we can get back. Oh, it's a day of small things. If we didn't move at all, it wouldn't make any difference. What's an inch or half an inch when you're confronted by a mountain? But here's the answer. Despise not the day of small things. The small things are nevertheless the things of God. Some of God's things are very small, but they're God's. And you see, if you do away with all the small things in the world, the big things will very soon collapse. You take a great organization. Well, yes, that's all right. You say, the only man who counts here 
is the general manager not at all. You have to have your office boy. Indeed, we've almost reached the stage in which the cleaners are the most important people, haven't we? Well, there it is, you see. And this works out all along the line. No chain is stronger than its weakest link. Never forget that. This pie is not the day of small things. The farmer sows his seed into the ground. Happens to be a very bad kind of spring. There's no sunshine, no rain, cold, bleak, dull. Nothing happens. Oh, as he wasted his energy. Nothing happening. Well, at last there's a, just a little sprouting, just a little appearance. Oh, but he said, what's that? That's nothing. I want to see a field of corn and a wheat fully ripened. That's the only way I can... Well, you show me just that little bit of greenness. Oh, don't despise the day of small things. That's God's way. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. It's all right, said the prophet to Zerubbabel, who was tempting to despise the day of small things. That great mountain will be flattened into a plain. It's all right. These are just the preliminary movements. If I may dare to use a comparison, God, you know, takes a very long run sometimes before he delivers the ball. So don't despise all that walking back. You say, that's a waste of time. Why doesn't get on with it? No, no, despise not the day of small things. That great mountain, it's going to become like a plain. Don't despise anything that happens in God's kingdom. Whether you are doing it or anybody else, realize, in other words, that all that you're feeling is due to the devil and nothing else. That he's trying to get hold of this idea which is so current in the world today of bigness and greatness. And if a thing isn't big and great, it's nothing. Don't believe it. It's a lie. Civilizations have generally collapsed because of the neglect of small things. That's how the Roman Empire went down. God forbid that an empire that we have known shan't go down in the same way. A people or an individual that is prone to neglect details is doomed to disaster. Despise not the day of small things, or to put it in quite a different way. Our Lord taught this, that men should always pray and not faint. The tendency to fainting is here. But don't, he says, pray. That's the antidote. Pray and not faint. Realize to whom you belong. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. However weak you are, however faint, you say, but I can't do this. I haven't got a great brain. I can't command great powers. Doesn't matter. The Spirit of God is in you. Pray to God the Father. Pray to God the Son. Pray to God the Holy Spirit. Men should always pray and not faint. If you don't pray, you will faint. So when you feel faint, go to God and talk to him about it. Get the thing clear in your mind. Ask him to give you strength and power. Just to go on with what you're doing. Realizing it's his work that it's well doing. And you know he'll reply to you and say this. It's all right. Be not weary in well doing. For in due season we shall reap. If we faint not, Christian people, there's a glorious harvest coming. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You're having a hard time, a difficult time. You're being misunderstood and maligned and persecuted and trodden upon. You're being buffeted and kicked. Oh, 
and you're tired and you're weary, your health is failing perhaps, and you're almost at the point of exhaustion. Go on, I say. Be not weary in well-doing. In due season, ye shall reap. A day is coming when you'll be received with these wonderful works. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You went on. You kept on. Yes, I say, lift up your eyes, look to God, and you'll receive that strength. Your young men shall run and not be weary. Ye shall walk and not faint. Keep on. There's a glorious harvest coming. If you're suffering with Christ now, you shall also reign with him. You're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. But lastly, here is the last word on this matter. There's nothing beyond this. The Son of God was once in this world. And he came in very lowly fashion. The bruised reed... He did not break the smoking flex. He did not quench. He was buffeted, jeered at, misunderstood by his own mother and by his brothers. Look at the way he was treated by the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the doctors of the law. How little did he seem to accomplish? So little that John the Baptist, even in a fit of depression and almost despair, sent his messengers asking, Art thou he that should come after all, or do we look for another? What are you doing up in Galilee if you're the son of God? Why don't you go down to Jerusalem and be crowned as king and raise a great army and conquer the Romans? What are you doing? You're doing nothing. Preaching to a handful of common, ordinary people. Who, do they, who are they? What do they count? That was the sort of life. And oh, he was very tired at times. So tired one afternoon that he was too weary to even to go into the village to buy some provision and sat by the side of a well in Samaria. One day he was so weary he looked at people and he said, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Everything was against him. Misunderstood even by his own followers. They all forsook him and fled at the end. He was left absolutely alone. But he went on. The cup, if it be possible, let this cup pass by, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done, whatever it costs. He went on. And they killed him, and he died and was buried, yes, but he rose again. He entered into heaven, and he seated at the right hand of God in the glory and the power. What, do I, what am I saying? Here it is. Cast aside that weight and that sin that doth so easily beset you. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood. Striving against sin. He did. Very well, my dear friend. In your weariness and tiredness, in your sense of failure, look unto Jesus, the author, the leader, the file leader, the finisher, the one who's at the head. You're simply following him. Realize the greatness of your privilege. Go on, keeping your eye upon him steadfastly, praying and not fainting. 
not despising the day of small things, not being weary in well-doing. If you suffer with him, you shall also be glorified together with him. And the day, the crowning day, is coming when you'll enter into your inheritance and spend your eternity in glory with him. Very well, we must leave it at that for this morning. But that is how we meet those particular manifestations of the wiles of the devil. Amen.